0: Welcome to the Moosroom, everybody. Dr. Joe Armstrong here with Dr. Bradley J. Hines, PhD, tenured professor, and we have a guest today. There is no Emily. She's on the road traveling yet again, which is nothing new, but we do have Isaac Hagen here with us today, and he is just recently joined the crew uh, on the dairy side of things at the University of Minnesota. And we're really excited to to have him here. Brad's a little biased because he was on the search committee and and got (laughs) to decide who came but uh, we're really excited that he's here. And we're, we're hoping to get to know him a little better today. How are you doing today, Isaac?
1: I'm all right. I'm here.
0: You're here. You're here. How's everything at the university going so far? Are you getting the hang of things?
1: It's a little bit, uh, you know, less deer in the headlights than it was a month ago. So that's a that's an improvement, at least.
0: Yes, it's uh, it's always a challenge to get rolling and figure out not just what you're going to do when it comes to research and extension and everything else, but also how everything works. It's a little shocking how big the system is and how how much bureaucracy and paperwork there can be. Uh, but but once you get over that, it, it does go smooth eventually, I promise.
2: Yeah, especially for Isaac, uh, new assistant professor, just a month on the job. And he's got to start from scratch and make his own research program and extension program. So it's, yeah, I'm, it's a daunting task.
0: Hopefully you love writing grants, right, Isaac? You just love writing grants left and right.
2: I will
1: learn to love it at the very least.
0: Absolutely. Uh, convince
1: myself I love it
0: for sure. Uh before we get to the super secret questions, Isaac, could you just give us 30 seconds to a minute the background, where you're from, where you went to school, your interests in general and then uh we'll get to our super secret questions.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh so I grew up on a, a dairy farm in Pennsylvania that had registered holsteins. Uh spent a lot of time doing youth activities in 4H and through the Junior Holstein Association growing up. Uh and and <laughs> Kind of with that, just really couldn't imagine not being in the dairy industry. Um, so I did my bachelor's and my PhD at Penn State, um, and my uh, grad work was mainly focused on dairy cattle breeding and genetics. Um, I was primarily interested in calves and heifers, and and thinking about how we can breed animals that are healthier during that stage of life um, and make them more um, kind of more productive once they get into the milking herd. For the last year, I was actually in Fort Collins um, doing a postdoc. Uh, I switched gears 180 for that, and I was actually working with shrimp for that year Uh, and uh, finally came back to the right side, and now I'm working with dairy cattle again.
0: Shrimp. Uh, I I totally could see how it relates. I mean, it's still production, uh, and there's still a herd health herd. herd, herd, I don't know what you call a group of shrimp.
1: There's definitely a lot to be said about, uh, you know, health and, and maintenance of that in, uh, in shrimp and in aquaculture in general. And it was a really interesting kind of switching into that world and, and seeing, you know, how far we are in uh, the dairy side of things comparatively to some other industries.
0: Traditionally, we always think of the cattle side of things, dairy or beef as being behind, right? We're always thinking of, we're trying to catch up to to pork and poultry. When it comes to technology and everything they've got going on vertical integration all of that and uh it's nice to hear that maybe we're ahead of some industries as well in some ways at least yeah yeah absolutely all right so before we go on we have to cover our two super secret questions and we'll start on the beef side what is your favorite breed of beef cattle
1: well i think my answer is going to be Charlay, and I have to preface this by saying that I'm choosing my favorite breed of beef cattle based off of what uh, the cross with the Holstein, I think, is the cutest. Um, <laughs> so I had a I had a, another grad student in my lab while I was at Penn State that was doing some beef on dairy crosses, and I got to go out into the field with her a few times, and, and I think the Charlay and Holstein crosses, they're just kind of cute furry gray things so that would be my pick
0: i can't fault you there and and your reasoning is it's pretty solid to be honest but uh still disappointing overall um but (laughs) i can't fault you all right on the beef side here's the tally rundown we haven't done this for a while black angus at 15 hereford at 10 Black Baldy at four, Scottish Highlander at four, Red Angus at three, Belted Galloway at two, Shorthorn at two, and now Charlay at two. And then, all with one, Stabilizer, Gelby, Brahmin, Keenina, Simiton, Nolore, Jersey, Normandy, Belgian Blue, Brangus, Piedmontese, and White Park. All right, you probably know what's coming next. What is your favorite breed of dairy cow?
1: I I should preface this by saying that neither of uh, you will probably be happy with what I'm about to say. Uh, but I'm going to go with Holstein. I grew up on a registered Holstein farm, participated in a lot of youth activities with Holstein, and I have a lot of appreciation for the breed. That being said, I do appreciate jerseys. Uh, but
0: my background not, an, is not enough, though. Not enough, though. All right, fine. Whatever we will it.
2: accept it today just because I'm feeling nice. <laughs>
0: But we will we will work to change your mind and hopefully this vote can come back and be changed one day. All right, running down the dairy side. We got Holstein now at twenty-two, Jersey at 14, Brown Swiss at eight, Montbelliard at three, Dutch belted at three, Normandy at two, Guernsey named two with a special shout out to Taffy, Milking Shorthorn at one and Ayrshire at one. Disappointing overall, but we will we'll figure it out later. <laughs> uh great first impression with my uh (laughs) breeds of choice it's okay it's okay you're not alone clearly especially on the Holstein side there's 21 other people that have picked that so far against Brad and I's wishes um but that's okay perfect so we got your background a little bit the dairy side of things is where you want to live calves I mean I, I I don't think there's a more important topic especially in the the dairy side of things the beef side of things as well uh, we struggle a lot keeping calves alive in general on the beef side of things, and a lot of dairies struggle with that too. So when you're looking at calf health, what are you looking to further in the industry? Because there's a lot of things we have figured out and there's a bunch of things we don't. So so what in your mind is is going to be your focus moving forward when you're looking at calves?
1: I think there's a, there's a couple avenues that I've kind of interested in. I will state I'm kind of an animal breeder by training. So, you know, I kind of have an interest in calf health from a, what can how can we improve the genetics of an animal to make permanent improvements in calf health? So I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, in regards to that. We we don't really have a lot of traits for producers to genetically select for um, in regards to calf health. And then I think that there's a lot to be done in terms of efficiency. You know, when we start talking about sustainability in the dairy systems um, now, I, I think we have a lot of room to grow in terms of that in in on the dairy side for efficiency of growth. You know, we talk a lot about average daily gain, but we don't really talk a lot about, uh, you know, how efficiently is that animal turning their feed into growth? We just talk how efficiently are they growing?
0: So on the beef side of things, we measure that with uh, a conversion, right? Feed, feed to mm-hmm. gain. Is that kind of what you're looking at on the on the calf side of things on the dairy side? Because when we're on milk, I guess what my my real question is: How are you going to measure it?
1: Yeah, so that's that's kind of one of the challenges, you know, on the kind of if we get into the production side of things, uh, is that you know we don't necessarily measure those uh, on individual calves uh, in the production side, but we can do that a little bit on the research side. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, thinking about feed. Uh, To gain is one way to think about it. Um, We can also think about it if we're thinking about, uh, you know, genetic selection, we can think about it in terms of residual feed intake, which is just, you know, did that animal eat more or less than we predicted it to eat? And those that ate less than we predicted are more efficient and those that ate more are less efficient.
0: Do you think that we're going to get to a point like when we look at beef or we look at dairy and we're looking at PTAs or EPDs? Are we going to get to a point where we have those numbers for calf growth? Like just like we do for, I mean, we we have some of that starting, right? But we don't have true PTAs or EPDs for calves when we're talking about their efficiency while they're still either still on mom on the beef side or on milk on the dairy side.
1: Yeah, I think we're definitely gonna get there. I think that we almost have to get there when we when we start thinking about you know farm economics and we start realizing how how tight things are and how much more, uh, you know, we're trying to improve efficiencies to improve profitability. I think it's important from that perspective. It's also really important when we do think about, you know, sustainability and, and our message to consumers in terms of, you know, we're, we're taking steps along that entire animal's life to make sure that this animal is using resources efficiently. Um, and, and, and we can get there. And, you know, we're, I, you know, uh, I'm interested in doing that. And, you know, we, We've really only started doing that on the cow side within the last couple of years. So I think I think we're just really moving very quickly when we start thinking about efficiency and sustainability.
2: Well, and I think heifers and calves seem, you know, we always tend to focus on cows because we see those tangible things. We see milk production right away out of those cows and and we can measure that. And the heifers and calves always seem to be the second thought or we, we forget about them a lot. and however there's a they're, they're pretty expensive uh, to raise and you know i've been having lots of thoughts about that re- recently about economics of heifer growing and when and when a heifer actually is profitable how many lactations or how many days does it take to work off that $2000 that it cost to raise so I think you're in the right ballpark, Isaac, with trying to figure out this heifer feed, uh, whether it's heifer efficiency, calf efficiency, how do we make those more animals more profitable?
1: Uh, Yeah, and and we're really just getting started into kind of this question too. So, you know, this idea of how do we measure it, I don't even know if we really have a good handle on that yet um, in calves. And, you know, the, the types of data that how we can record that data is even not necessarily well established in calves. You know, we can keep you know, a traditional setting where it's a bottle or a pail and with milk and then also another pail with grain. Well, you know, maybe there are more efficient ways to collect that data with, uh, you know, automated systems now um, and things like that. So, so, I mean, there's just a lot of questions that we, we don't have the answers
2: to. Yeah, I agree. It's trying to measure, Intake on calves, whether it be grain or milk, uh, is challenging. It's even challenging in a research center to do that, to get it accurately. So, yeah, it's, and maybe there are some, well, I like your your thought. Maybe there's some sensors we can use to measure it.
0: Bradley's all about the sensors. So one of the things I saw in your, your research a lot, Isaac, was the, the term telomere and telomere length. With cattle and associated with production and health morbidity, all these other things, it's somewhat of a complicated topic. So, can we get the shortened version on what you're looking at there?
1: Yeah. So, uh, essentially, all mammals have telomeres. It's a repetitive sequence that's located on the end of chromosomes, um, and and the short answer is that it it protects your chromosomes from uh, essentially degrading and uh, you know dying. Or, you know cells from dying and um so they shorten more quickly due to stress and they shorten across period due time due to age. Uh, so they're you know it's kind of one of these things that you know some researchers are a little bit excited about in terms of measuring kind of an kind of as an overall biomarker of health and well-being and, and measuring stress across an animal's lifespan. And so, you know, there's there's research in in humans and you know mice that you know that yeah, as stress increases, telomeres shorten more quickly, um, and you know it might be related to health and longevity uh, on an applied scale. That that is something that I've been interested in uh, on the on the cattle side as well, and and I got kind of interested in that um, through my advisor at Penn State, Chad Duckell.
0: I love things in genetics that are are something you can measure. Which is which is cool, right? It doesn't happen super often, and even when we talk to PTAs, EPDs, they're kind of made up numbers, to be honest, right? And then they're relative to each other, and we just picked a point to start. And with telomeres, it's it's fun because it's like this is this is how long it is, and there's there's very it's just measurable and defined, which is really cool. Which sometimes doesn't happen with genetics, or there's so many variables involved, it's hard to identify those things that you can measure.
1: I mean, you know, my excitement with it is just, you know, it, it it's really hard to find kind of an objective biomarker of health or well-being of an animal outside of, you know, this animal was diseased or not. And and I think that, it, you know, there's some potential that it could actually give us kind of a more objective measure of overall well-being.
0: I'll ask you this, especially with Brad in the room, don't feel pressured to answer a certain way. But when we talk genetics, the first thing I think a lot of people think of is crossbreeding. So knowing your background from a registered Herstein, Holstein farm, what what's your thoughts on crossbreeding in this place in the industry?
2: I think mean, you have the tough questions today. You're putting them on the spot. It's like, <laughs> you want to know. Yeah. Um,
1: so, uh, you know, I, I I do come from a registered background, you know, grew up with registered Holsteins, showed registered Holsteins. I will, you know, did some crossbreeding research actually in my uh, grad school and Got onto farms that had purebred Holsteins, had some Pro crosses, had had multiple different breeds, and I think one of the things that I I gained from all of this is that you know purebreds work, crossbreds work. It really depends on what you want and how you want to manage your cattle. You know we can we can think about things of you know uh, a producer you know I want to really maximize uh, income that's being generated, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, some of these, the crosses aren't going to work for you or the breeds that you would utilize in a cross aren't going to work for you. But, you know, you, you know, you take Brad's system for instance, which is really low input. Maybe they're going to work great. You know, if you choose the right breeds. And I I think that's the other thing that we really have to talk about when we talk about crossbreeding is making sure that if you are going to do it, you choose the breeds that make sense for your operation. And I think that they can work in tandem together too. So I'll once again, I grew up on a registered farm. And, you know, my parents have still have registered Holsteins. Uh, They also have some crosses. Um, And, you know, they work well together. Um, and, And I think that, you know, we don't necessarily have to choose one or
0: the other. I like that. That's perfect. All right. One of the things we've been doing Isaac is letting Guess just grill us turn it back around and maybe you had a chance to do this when when brad was running interviews and things like that but if you have questions for us you want to put us on the spot since i put you on the spot a little bit today what uh what questions do you have for us brad's always grilling me and and trying to put me on the spot with veterinary related stuff so i just i didn't know if you would have the same thing going on or not but
1: This is just a question, and this might be a better question for next time, too. And this is also just kind of a general question. And, you know, one of the things that I kind of got interested in during grad school was uh, uh, serum total protein that producers are actually measuring. Um, So, you know, we had a couple farms that were actually inputting that data into Dairy Comp, which, by the way, is super useful and super beneficial if you're actually recording that data in a centralized location. But, you know, I think one of those discussions that at least comes up kind of in the research world is that, is is there ever a point where there's too much of a good thing? And is there a way that we can actually determine if there's too much of a good thing? So if we think of uh, immunoglobulin uh, absorption of the calf, you know, uh, know, calves that just have extremely high, uh, you know, can we ever push it too far is my question. That's an kind of abstract question, I know.
0: Yeah, so so I've seen some of the numbers. I've seen some of the the crazy high numbers, right? And I think that at some point, and I don't know where the cutoff is because it's so different for each calf, but at some point, depending on when you're measuring and how high that number gets, I'm convinced those calves are dehydrated. They're not actually that high. And those numbers are they're false. They're a false reading because of how high they are. I don't think we can get too much colostrum in these calves. I really don't think that's possible because at some point you just shut down the absorption and that colostrum is still beneficial because it binds pathogens in the gut, right? But for me, whenever I see a high number, I'm worried about other management issues that probably involve whether or not water is available and how much they're feeding because I think it's a dehydration issue more than it is having too much IgG around. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I think that's where I would look first is the the environment, the management, lack of water or not feeding enough milk would, for me, create that high number. And there's not really too much of a good thing in this case, because the the biology, the physiology of the calf will stop absorption at 24 hours or a little bit after. So it's not, to me, I don't think you can overdo colostrum, unless you're talking hmm. economics, but.
1: Yeah, and so my question kind of stems from the fact of I got interested in this somewhat from a genetic selection standpoint, um, and whether or not we can select calves that actually are better able to absorb the immunoglobulins in colostrum. And so my question partially stems from could we potentially select calves who, you know, maybe absorption continues beyond 24 hours or you know we're we're all of a sudden we're selecting calves that you know maybe go a little bit beyond the normal physiology
0: i still don't think that would be a bad thing i think it would change the game a little bit when it comes to vaccine schedules and when passive immunity starts to wane or maternal immunity starts to wane within the calf so you might even be able to push things a little later than we we do right now at some point i think we can push the genetics really, really far, but it's going to limit itself in some way from either physiology or just the the biology of these animals. The ability to a surface area in the gut is a limiting factor, right? Like, I mean, at some point, you it just you just can't absorb more. I think there's there's things that will limit it in some way.
2: Oh, man, we could debate about colostrum all day. Maybe we have that one uh, episode because I've been on a colostrum kick lately with some of the data that I have that sort of shows i'm not sure that force feeding colostrum to calves uh, is we, we need it like the mom provides enough colostrum for the cow and maybe we let the calf suck off the cow and get an adequate colostrum and igg levels and then you know and they're getting colostrum that transition colostrum all of that so i don't know i've been thinking a lot about colostrum lately with some of the calf data that I have here at Morris. Granted, it there are some calves that probably need some extra colostrum, even if they're drinking off mom, they just don't have adequate IgGs. And I think that goes back to Isaac's thought of maybe we need to find calves or select for calves that can absorb longer or or who knows what. Because there are some, there's calves, and no matter if you force colostrum in them or let it let them get it from mom, there are some that are still low. On average, I think a calf will. And a cow, you know, do what nature says it's supposed to do. But I know that's not the popular opinion right now. And uh, yeah, some people look at me crazy when I say that. But I, I don't care. I'm I'm crazy anyways. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I challenge thought a little bit. And and whether you know what 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 we're doing. You know, I've been to some farms. It's like bam, the calf drops. Immediately, we got to run over there and grab that calf away from mom and then you give it you know other colostrum so it's i don't know i, I just don't know and you know even the, so
1: the farms that we were working with and 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 Brad was on this i should mention Brad was a co-author on a lot of these papers so Brad does know some of the data i'm talking about you know they were they were doing pooled colostrum um and you know they're and so they had you know like a lot of farms they had minimum cutoffs of um kind of colostrum quality going into calves, but there was still a lot of variation in how much those calves were absorbing. Um, And it was less of them, there really wasn't a maternal effect either, um, because of the pooled colostrum, um, which is was another really interesting thing to me from that.
0: Well, yeah, maybe we do need to have a debate uh, about colostrum. Bradley, I did get that question at a meeting I was just at about whether or not, we should allow calves to just get their own from mom. And yeah, we we talked a long time about that and, you know, biosecurity being a big issue with Yoni's, leukosis and things that transfer in colostrum, but also it's a different kind of management, right? Depending on your housing situation for calving, because now if you got calves in that pen for a longer period of time, do you have them stealing colostrum from other cows? Do you have these other things going on that you have to watch for, which is something... Actually, we learned a ton about in confinement cow-calf beef operations, where we had some failure passive transfer issues, and it's because you've got not only calves stealing from other cows, but young young heifers, if they're in the same group, um, stealing colostrum from other cows and trying to find all that stuff, and that that's something that we've dealt with on the beef side. So there's a lot of management issues there, and, and I guess we don't really have time to get into it today. Isaac, any other things you wanted to bring up uh, that you want people to know about you before we have you on again to have all these great debates?
1: Uh, I guess I would say that uh, I've only been here for a month, but I am enjoying it a lot so far. Um, started getting out onto some farms and and trying to meet some producers, but you know, I I, I will say my my primary appointment is extension, so I'm just. Uh, really looking forward to to meeting more producers, particularly in Minnesota and across the upper Midwest. And, uh, you know, if anybody listening to this runs into me or sees me out and about, make sure you say hello and looking forward to creating those long term relationships with uh, the producers.
0: We could talk a lot more and have a lot more debates. And Brad tried to bring up vaccines <laughs> and calves earlier, and we just we don't have time to to <laughs> reopen that can. So with that, we're gonna wrap it up. Thank you, Isaac, for being here today. We really appreciate it. We'll have you back. We can all argue some more, and then we'll add Emily to the mix to spice things up as well. If you have comments, questions, scathing rebuttals about this episode, please send those to the Room at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. Find us on Twitter at umnmoosroom and at umnfarmsafety. Find Bradley on Instagram, at U-M-N-W-C-R-O-C-Dairy. Check us out on the web, extension.umn.edu. That is plenty of plugs. Thank you again, Isaac. We'll catch everybody next week. Bye.
2: Bye.